Good morning. It's so good to be together again, even although we're still not together in person and I really, really can't wait to see you all. Just a quick heads up, uh, at the beginning of this talk, I'll be sharing communion at the end. So if you want to grab some juice and some bread, you can join in, that would be great. Well, this week has marked the hundredth day since the beginning of lockdown. It began on March the 23rd, and this week also they published the strategy of stage three of lockdown, uh, which started on Friday, July the 4th. The good news is that churches are included in the list of institutions that can now open. Um, but the bad news is that this doesn't mean that we can go back to meeting yet. We've looked very, very closely at the more than 6,000 words of small print about how we would be able to get back together. And at the moment, it's not possible for us to get back into the auditorium. We all know, though, don't we, that it's not our Sunday services that we uh, use to decide whether the church has been open or not. Um, because the church has been meeting in so many different ways. We've met online, we've met online as a community every Sunday, we've met together in small groups, we've met together um, as prayer group most days, and obviously the church has been busier than ever in storehouse with people literally working their butts off to um, feed and help the community to... Uh, survive really in lockdown in so many so many different ways. We've had times of celebration together as we've continued to enjoy the ministry of worship through the great worship leaders that we've got in our church. Um, we've had some brilliant new faces in the children's worship so you must check out the kids worship videos that are available if you haven't seen them. There's some brilliant brilliant new faces there. Um, we've had people leading us in prayer during these Sunday mornings and we've acknowledged together the suffering and the pain in this world with the virus. In the 100 days of lockdown, initially there was a groundswell of support and a kind of we're all in this together feel with really great appreciation for the amazing NHS and other key workers who continue to work as well as those who shielded and helped to keep us all safe. But then there's always been, there's also been so much bad news um, because with COVID-19, a lid was lifted for us to see so many injustices even more extremely than we'd seen them before. Um, some of us uh, have had safe homes to stay, stay in, um, whereas others have had not such safe spaces to stay in. And around the world, there's been war and poverty, and people are still in terrible danger from COVID-19 in so many places. In our country, we've seen how those from Asian, Black and Jewish communities particularly have had a disproportionate amount of sickness and death due to the virus. We've also witnessed the brutal murder of George Floyd, which highlighted the truth about police brutality and injustice to those of us that didn't, not, didn't know that already. And it's not just in the US, but it's around the world. It's opened our eyes to racism in a way that we didn't realise before. 
because of what's going on and because of what the Holy Spirit is doing, we want to say loud and clear that black lives matter to us. It matters that our black community is hurting and we want to walk with them as well as we can. As well, we want to make this world a better place for the future. We don't want it to stay as it is. And for me, personally, this includes educating myself about colonial history and Windrush and COVID-19. We've walked together in weeping as, as people have died. People have lost their jobs. They've struggled with being locked in when they're in abusive situations. But we've also walked together in the joy of healings and the strength that comes from our faith. We've heard inspiring talks from many speakers in our congregation and others from teaching that's been available to us online. It's been a time when we can reflect. We've wanted to maintain a positive outlook, but there are times, to varying degrees, where we've been frustrated, heartbroken, lonely, sick, bored, hopeless sometimes and despairing. And some have been hungry and jobless, getting up each day and not knowing where to start, but partly because there's nothing to do, but partly as well because the whole world needs changing and we feel powerless to know what we can do to make it a better place. How can the gospel be good news for us today? How can we live with the tension of the dreams that James encouraged us last week to remember and to ask God for when we've got so many difficulties and traumas in the lives that we're living at the moment? It's interesting that when Paul begins his description of the gospel in the book of Romans, he quotes a passage from Hosea, which includes the cries of God's people saying, How long, O Lord, will you listen to our cries and not answer us? There is so much in scripture, in the Psalms, in Lamentations, and in so many different places where people are crying out to God. And we think of the slaves in Egypt crying out to God for things to change. There's always a lot of discussion around what the gospel is, and I'm not going to go into that today. But instead, I want to go to a passage in Luke's gospel where Luke's focus is on Jesus as he begins his ministry and he starts to teach about the kingdom of God. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. This is in Luke chapter 80. Chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This passage um, is a direct, almost direct quote from Isaiah 61. And Jesus is claiming here that he is the long-awaited Messiah promised in the Old Testament prophecies. I love this passage because it captures the heart of who Jesus is and what he came for. It's interesting in this statement that Jesus makes about himself that there are two groups involved in the good news that he's preaching. There's a setting free 
a releasing of debt, which is the idea of the the year of the Lord's favour that's mentioned there, and an opening of eyes to see. One group is being set free, but the other group is having to release people into freedom. So in order for the gospel of the kingdom to be received, the oppressors have to set the oppressed free. That's a big thought to think about, and my brain certainly is a bit frazzled trying to work it all through. So I thought it would be good today to ask God to speak to us through a story. This story is based on John chapter 9, and it's my take on the text. The man born blind. I was minding my own business, as I always do. I don't like making a spectacle of myself, excuse the pun. I've always been blind, you see, and people find me disgusting anyway, because I have to beg in order to survive. I don't make a fuss. I don't ask anything extraordinary of anyone, but I do sit with my begging pot. People here in Jerusalem know that's the only way someone like myself can survive. I've always been an outsider. I can't see anyone, obviously, but they don't see me either. I don't think they see me. When I was younger, I would hear children around me playing, but no one ever really included me. I would pretend to have friends, but I knew that it would be too hard for anyone to have me as their friend. I couldn't keep up with them, and I'd fall over and injure myself. So it's easier for me to just sit quietly out of harm's way. Nowadays, I choose to sit near the temple because lots of people go past. And actually, it's quite a good place to be because you find people at their best when they're going to worship God, and they're more likely to give you some money. Every now and then I hear the odd coin dropping into my space and that's obviously encouraging as it means that I can eat later on. Sometimes I hear a friendly voice, people who remember me and come and give me a small thought every now and then. Most of the time the voices I hear aren't addressed to me. In fact they're just a part of the humdrum of everyday life. I do hear a lot of what goes on though. I may not be able to see people in my town, so I don't know what they look like, but I probably know a lot more people than you would think. I know which people are pop- which prophets are popular and, I, and which ones aren't as well, and I know which of the temple leaders I would trust and which ones I wouldn't. I mean, most of those men visit the brothel down the road. I heard a great furore earlier today when a poor woman had been dragged into the temple. From what I could hear, they were calling for her to be stoned and nobody would normally stand up to these men. But apparently this teacher from Galilee called their bluff and challenged anyone not guilty of the sin of adultery to stone her. They all went away. Everyone sees them coming in and out, where they go. So they knew that they couldn't get away with it. They knew that they couldn't stone that woman. Anyway, back to now, I could hear this kerfuffle coming towards me with a few men having a go at someone else for not being careful enough. These men were really upset with this person 
whoever it was. And as they got nearer, I could hear that they were talking about something else. In fact, they started to talk about me. That actually is not unusual. Often when people go past, they have a conversation about me, especially if there are children in the group. And often it's around the same thing. What do you think he's done wrong? Why are the gods so angry with him that they made him blind? I sat silently, as I always do, not really wanting to hear the long list of guesses about what my possible sin might be. And then, yes, perhaps they might give me the benefit of the doubt and say, well, I suppose it could have been something his parents did. Normal sort of stuff, as if I wasn't there, of course. Then I might hear the chink of a coin, as whoever it was moved on. But this time they stood still near me and continued their conversation. I actually felt quite uncomfortable hearing them talking. I wished they would just move on like everyone else. But then, as I listened, I heard the voice of someone speaking with conviction. Maybe he was that teacher, the one from Galilee, who I heard about and spoke about earlier. I'm listening carefully and what I'm hearing is quite surprising. No, it's not because he's sinned that he's blind. And then, no, it's not because his parents sinned either. I waited intently to what the reason must be then. Of course it must be because of something I've done or something mum and dad did. Everyone knows that, don't they? For most of us, It's trying to work out what that sin was and and how it caused my blindness. It actually makes for quite a fun game for some people, it seems. So I'm sitting here waiting for what he's going to say. And then he says something about the glory of God in my life. That's a joke. God would never glory in my life. I mean, let's face it. The scriptures are very clear about what God thinks of me. I know off by heart the bit in Leviticus, in the Torah, that talks about people like me. It goes like this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, For the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food to his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed, No man with a crippled foot or hand or who is a hunchback or a dwarf or who has any eye defect or who has festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron the priest who has any defect is to come near to present the food offerings to the Lord. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of God. He may eat some of the food as well as the holy food, but because of his defect... He must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes them holy. So, there you go, you see. It's obvious. And just as my mind has gone off in this direction and I've been thinking about these scriptures, I hear a noise, someone spitting. I'm used to that. I wait to feel it land on me somewhere. Despised, that's who I am. People spit on me. But then I sense someone bending over me, really, really close to me. And I start to get a bit frightened. 
But then the voice that I hear isn't violent or angry or horrible. It's this teacher's voice. I think it's him. And he says, whilst it's still day, we must do the works of him who sent me. I am the light of the world. I had no idea at that point in time what he meant. To talk about work today is a bit unwise, just outside the temple. I mean, it's the Sabbath today. And the most work I sense people doing is chucking me a coin every now and then. I do hope this guy might do that. I'm still feeling really uncomfortable as he comes so close and so in my face. I can sense him coming even closer. Do you think he's going to hurt me? But then I feel this warm stuff on my eyes and something sticky on my face. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, I hear him say. I'm waiting for something else to happen, but nothing does. They've gone away. There was something about the way that he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam which made me tremble inside. It gave me goosebumps. Something about the tenderness and the authority in his voice, like he really, really did care about me. That he knew something that I didn't know. There was something about the encounter that made me know I had to get to that pool. This wasn't just a careless, throw-away-at-a-blind-man type comment. So I got my stick and I stood and I felt behind me and I felt in front of me and I felt to the left of me and I felt to the right of me and I located myself so I knew which way to step forward and slowly made my way into the pool. He had sent me, that's for sure, and I knew that I would get there if I could just make those first few steps. Yes, I bumped into some things on the way and I chose to ignore the insults and the jibes when I inconvenienced someone with my presence. But I got there at last. The water felt warm and there didn't seem to be too many people. I slipped in and got used to the water on my skin. I splashed a bit and I made sure that my feet were stable and I wasn't going to get out of my depth. And then I cupped my hands and washed the water over my face. I did it again and again, and as I did so, I could feel that something very, very strange but wonderful was happening to me. As the water ran down my face and I stood in the pool, I noticed that some light was appearing, and there were silhouettes and shapes of things and people around me. I had never seen anything before. As I stood incredulously, the world made itself known to me for the first time. I could put a picture on the children playing by the poolside, the old and the young bustling along the road. My hands, I could see my hands, my arms and my feeble body and my threadbare clothes. I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry or to weep or to dance. People carried on around me as if nothing had happened. Same sounds, the same smells. No thunderbolts, no drum rolls, nobody noticing. But I can see. 
I walk out of the water so much easier than trying to get into it. I notice the rock sticking from up, up from the ground and the large dead creature on the ground, both of which I would have had difficulty not tripping over half an hour earlier. I start to walk. Where shall I go? Back to the begging spot? I don't think so. I don't need to go there anymore. I'll go and buy myself a sandwich. Wow. <clears throat> so that's what my local food store looks like. There's Jethro, the guy who I would normally come and buy my lunch from. Blind man, he shouts. How are you? And then he looks at me and I look at him. Yes, I can see you. How the heck did that happen, he asks. Well, the teacher, he put mud on my eyes and told me to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Oh my goodness, he said, you better have a free sandwich. People around us were starting to gather and to stare and to come and see what was happening. And they started talking and they realised who I was and, and what happened to me. And I recognised some of their voices. And so many people were gathering that they decided that they should take me to the temple and get me checked out. I hadn't been allowed much into the temple before. They dragged me in front of the Pharisees who started to shout at me. My goodness, this was worse than being blind and have people ignore me. I was quite scared. They were asking me threatening questions and I was just telling them what happened. I knew those voices. They were the ones that couldn't be trusted. I would never have thought that something so wonderful for me could become such a threat to these people. What was the matter with them? They seemed so anxious to prove that this teacher was an imposter and not from God. I told them I had no idea about him, but what I did know was that I had been blind and that now I could see. They didn't want to believe me. They even asked my mum and dad what had happened. Mum and dad didn't want to get embroiled in some political uprising and they told them that I was adult, so they should ask me. Wow, that feels good. My testimony being listened to. So my testimony does count for something. I said to these guys, you're asking me so many questions about this teacher. Maybe you want to become one of his disciples. Well, that was obviously the wrong thing to say. But think about it. That scripture in Leviticus that said I could never even minister or even go into God's house. And here I am teaching the Pharisees. They are so mad. They take a hold of me and they spit on me. And they say, how dare you lecture us? You were steeped in sin from the moment you were born. Now I've been thrown out of the temple again. Wow, that didn't take long. Well, at least I can see. So I can start to think about what my life might look like. Haha, <laughs> excuse the pun. Still, I'm feeling quite dejected and pushed out again. I can hear a commotion. Some people are running towards me. And it's not just that I'm hearing them this time, I can see them as well. It's that teacher. He's running towards me. His name is Jesus, apparently. I can see him. 
He comes right up to me and he embraces me. I heard they threw you out, he said. I just couldn't stop myself. It was so embarrassing. My eyes were welling up and I'd just been excluded my whole life. I'd gone through so many emotions. I just wept and wept and the tears just flowed and flowed. But I felt the teacher's hand on my shoulder and he asked me gently, do you believe in the Son of Man? Whoever he is, please tell me about him, I said. I want to believe in him. Yes, of course I believe in him. He embraced me again. Some of the Pharisees had been keeping an eye on the situation. Jesus looked me in the eyes and said he'd come to open the eyes of the blind, but he'd also come to show up those who thought they could see and make them blind. Are you calling us blind? The Pharisees yelled. If the cap fits, said the teacher. If you think you can see, then you'll be judged by that. But if you admit you're blind, then you can receive God's mercy. Suddenly, I realised I was included. I wasn't an outsider anymore. Jesus pulled me into his kingdom. He shared his bodily fluids with me when he spat on the mud. And that was before my defect was gone. Yes, my eyes were opened later and the eyes of my heart are open now. I am included. I am as close as you can get to God. The Holy of Holies. Jesus spit on my eyes. And that was whilst I was still blind. You can't get closer to God than that. End of story. I love this passage because it shows how Jesus pulls into his kingdom those that have been excluded, those that society just takes for granted and assumes that it's okay to despise. He turns upside down who are the insiders and who are the outsiders, who are the ministers and who are the ones being ministered to. Jesus' body is only truly represented on earth when all are included with equal value and worth. As Steve mentioned in his talk uh, a couple of weeks ago, that unless the body of Christ is that group of people it mentions in Revelation around the throne from every nation and tongue, then it's not the true image of God. If you have read the weekly email the last couple of weeks, you'll notice that we've included a vision statement for our community here at Ellsbury Vineyard about how we want to be a truly inclusive, united community. Of course, we're also part of the body of Christ with others in Aylesbury and around the world, but our initial focus is on being that community together here at the vineyard. We're going to pause and pray now together as we take or reflect on the sacrament of communion. We remember and look back to Christ's life, death and resurrection, his fulfilment of God's ancient promise and covenant with creation, Adam and Eve and Abraham. And we look forward to that time when his kingdom and glory will truly cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, where there will be no more tears and no more suffering, no more evil, 
And we think now of his presence with us as we gather around his table, eating and drinking together around who he is and what he's done.